All right, well, it's great to see everybody here this morning, and I uh, invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark, and we will be in Mark chapter 14 this morning. If you're using the Bible in front of you, I uh, encourage you to grab that, and uh, it's on page 850, okay? Mark chapter 14 on page 850, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11, 1 through 11. Okay, I'll begin reading for us in verse 1, all right? It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word and for this opportunity to gather around your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us clarity and knowledge and insight and wisdom into your word during this time. And Father, we pray that as you do that, as you move by your spirit, that we would fall deeper and deeper in love with Christ who is revealed to us in this word. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we are returning to our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, So we've been in a series in Mark for some time. We took a break for the summer during the month of July. We're actually going through a series on David. And uh, now we are re-engaging our series in Mark. So we're starting in chapter 14. There's only 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. So we'll work through 14, 15, 16. We'll finish, Lord willing, right before Christmas. And so very excited to get back into our series in Mark. And really, it's, this is a great passage to start with as we're re-engaging our series in Mark because the main point in this passage is that Jesus is worthy of extravagant devotion. And the reason why this is a good place for us to start as we re-engage our series in the Gospel of Mark is because this is really the point of the whole Gospel of Mark. Mark is writing this Gospel to persuade us to teach us about who Jesus is, and then to persuade us that He is worthy of our absolute devotion, that He is worthy of our complete love and affection. So the big idea I want us to see in our text this morning is that Jesus is worthy of extravagant devotion. And we're going to consider this in two parts. The first is that Jesus is worthy, and then the second is extravagant devotion. So first of all, Jesus is worthy. Look there in verse 1, and we read these words. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. 
Now, Mark has told us this on a number of occasions, starting back in Mark chapter 8, that the religious leaders desire to arrest and kill Jesus. That's their intent at this point. And in the midst of this, in the midst of this taking place, and they have intentions to kill Jesus, we see that this woman approaches Jesus and anoints him by pouring out an expensive perfume on his head. Now, notice in verse 8 how Jesus interprets her actions. He says there, She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, one of the things I want you to see here and take note of is that this is yet another prediction by Jesus of His coming death. So as He says in response to her action, She is anointing my body for burial. He is, again, predicting His coming death. He has repeatedly done this through the Gospel of Mark, starting back in chapter 8. He has told His disciples, I am going to Jerusalem, and they will arrest Me, and they will beat Me, and I will be put to death. And so it's worth noting here again that Jesus' death and the particularities of His death were not an accident. They were not some unfortunate mishap, but they were predetermined. They were purposeful, and Jesus repeatedly spoke of their eventual arrival. It's remarkable in light of that, in light of Jesus knowing what is coming, it is remarkable that out of obedience to His Father and out of love for us, that He willingly yielded Himself to this unjust and tragic death. You know, most of us would love to know the future. I mean, think about all the things you, you could know if you, if you had knowledge of the future. Who will I marry? Maybe that's something you know that's on your mind. Will I be accepted into the school of my dreams? Will I hit my financial goals for retirement? Will the Braves win the World Series this year? You might remember several years or many years ago, actually now at this point, there was a movie made uh, entitled Back to the Future. And uh, if you've seen the movie, you know the storyline. There's an older guy in the movie, his name's Doc, and he creates a time machine and he sends this young teenager, Marty, back in time. And now Marty, as he goes back in time, can evaluate all the decisions that his young parents are making in light of his knowledge of the future, right? So he goes back, and now his parents are young, and he's in the past, and they're making these critical decisions that are going to affect their lives, and he can evaluate all their decisions now because he's lived in the future. And the great thing about the movie is that based on his perfect knowledge of the future, he can tinker with things and influence his young parents and ultimately change the future. Wouldn't that be great? If you knew the future, if you knew the future perfectly, and you could influence the present in order to change the future for your advantage, we see here that Jesus has a perfect knowledge of the future. Absolute perfect foresight of what is coming. His pending arrest and trial and death. And He could have influenced things. He could have changed things but rather out of obedience to His Father and out of a love for us, He yields Himself to His Father's will. 
In verse 8, we see that before his arrest, before his trial, before his death, Jesus offers his body in preparation for the sacrifice he will make to atone for our sins. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And in other words, Jesus is saying, and I accept it. I receive it. I yield myself to my Father's will. And I offer my body as a sacrifice for the sins of my people. You know, if we think about this in terms of the Old Testament imagery of sacrifice and how they offered sacrifices for their sins, we can imagine here that as the religious leaders plot, you can imagine the altar being built. You can imagine the knife being sharpened. You can imagine the stack of wood being piled up for the fire. And Jesus does not fight. He does not resist as He, He will be identified as the sacrifice and placed on the altar. Centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke of his willingness to go to the cross, and he marveled. In Isaiah 53, he wrote, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, there are many, many reasons this morning why Jesus is worthy of our extravagant devotion and love and worship, but we can say that not least of these is His willingness to freely offer Himself to be slaughtered, to offer His body to be slaughtered for our eternal redemption and salvation. So the first thing we see in our account this morning is that Jesus is worthy. Secondly, I want us to consider extravagant devotion. Extravagant devotion. So if you look there in verse 3, we are told, As Jesus was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And then what follows in the verses after that are two different responses to this act of devotion. So, Matthew's gospel and John's gospel tells us that those who were present there with Jesus were his disciples and his friends. And there is one response. They are indignant, right? They scold her for this action. They believe it to be wasteful. But then there's another response, and that is Jesus' response, in which he deems her actions to be beautiful and enduring. And so in the rest of our time together, what I want us to to do is to consider three characteristics of this woman's act of extravagant devotion. And the three characteristics are as follows. Her actions were wasteful, that's one. Secondly, beautiful. And third, enduring. Okay, so these are the three characteristics. Her extravagant act of devotion were wasteful, beautiful, and enduring. Notice, first of all, it was wasteful. At least this is the accusation of some. You see it there in verses 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to to the poor. And they scolded her. So in the eyes of some, it was a waste of money. You see there in verse 3 that the alabaster flask was a flask of ointment and pure nard, or was filled with ointment and pure nard. Nard was an expensive oil that was extracted from an Indian root. And there was enough here, we see, in the flask to warrant a price tag of 300 denarii. 
Now, one denarii was worth a day's wages. So 300 denarii were worth 300 days' wages. That equi- the equivalent of that is one year's salary. So just think about how much money you make in one year. We're talking about a large sum of money here. You may not think you make a lot of money in one year, but a large sum of money, one year's income, is what this perfume is worth. And notice as well, as you consider in the text, you consider her gift here and what she's willing to give, consider that in contrast to Judas's willingness in verses 10 and 11 to betray Jesus, right? And for what? Money. Isn't that what the text says? He was willing to betray Jesus in verses 10 and 11 for money. So it stands in direct contrast to the expensive gift that this woman is willing to give to honor Jesus. And how much was Judas willing to betray Jesus for? Well, Mark doesn't tell us in this passage, but the larger gospel account tells us it was 30 pieces of silver, which according to the Old Testament was the price for a slave was the equivalent of about four months' wages. So notice the disparity. Notice the comparison between the two. To betray Jesus, Judas is willing to settle for approximately one-third of what the lady is willing to extravagantly pour out in an act of devotion and love for Jesus. You know, this theme that we're talking about here is a repeated theme through the Gospel of Mark, a repeated theme actually throughout the whole Bible, and it is this. Money is one of the key indicators of where our heart is before God. Money is one of the key indicators of where our heart is before God. In fact, this is particularly a theme in this section in the Gospel of Mark. So at the end of Mark chapter 12, there are many parallels between the woman we encounter there and the woman we encounter at the beginning of Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 12, I'll, I'll remind you, Mark chapter 12 is full of these confrontations that take place between Jesus and the religious leaders in the temple. And then Mark 12 ends with all these rich people coming into the temple and they are giving their money to the treasury. And then there's this poor widow that comes along, and she only has a penny, but she puts the penny into the offering, and Jesus is not impressed with the giving of any of the rich who are coming along and giving their large sums of money, but rather he centers on, he concentrates on that one single poor widow who gives just a penny. It's a throwaway, right? Who cares about a penny? And Jesus says she has given more than all the others. And why? Because she gave out of her poverty. And here it is again. Another woman comes to Jesus and full of love and full of devotion for Christ. She pours out all that she has. And Jesus says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She's given everything. Just like the poor widow. You know, I wonder as we consider the example of this woman and how she was willing to give so freely, I wonder, would anyone be tempted to think that your giving is wasteful? Is that like an adjective that would ever be connected with your giving for the kingdom? Do you just dabble in giving to support the gospel ministry and kingdom work, or are you generous? 
Could your generosity even be considered extravagant? What we see here is that this woman's extravagant love for Christ was demonstrated by her extravagant giving. So in the eyes of some, it was a waste of money, but in the eyes of some, it was also a waste of her future. Alistair Begg points out that under normal circumstances, a woman would use a flask of ointment like this that was so expensive and valuable as a dowry for her wedding, or perhaps she would save it for for herself to be anointed when she herself dies and is buried. So in light of that, if, if, if these might be two common purposes to use a flask of ointment like this, a dowry for your wedding or to be buried, in light of that, when this woman pours out the flask of ointment on Jesus, we could say that in many ways she is choosing to pour out her future on Jesus. Once the flask was broken, it was lost. There was no going back. J.C. Ryle, a Christian pastor and writer from the 19th century, wrote, quote, If someone devotes time, money, affection to the pursuit of worldly things, the world does not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure of politics, they find no fault. But if the same person devotes himself in all he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He is beside himself. He is out of his mind. He is a fanatic. He is an enthusiast. He is too righteous. He is an extremist. In short, they regard it as a waste. End of quote. And listen, my friends, if you follow Jesus with full-hearted devotion, you too will hear the critiques. And they will scold you. If you make sacrifices to care for the poor, if you take a stand for the gospel in your workplace, if you choose a much less lucrative career path in service for Christ, if you adopt perhaps an orphaned child who needs a home, if you answer the call to go overseas to the underserved and unreached peoples of the world, some will be indignant and they will say, what a waste. Don't throw your life away. Don't be a fool. Have you lost your mind? And some of you have people in your life, even now, maybe it's friends, maybe it's family, and you hear their voices. Don't be a fool and waste your life. And this woman challenges us. Will we listen to the voices of moderation or will we passionately follow Jesus? Listen, it is, it, is a, it is so very clear as we consider the gospel accounts and we consider the life and the teaching of Jesus that Jesus is not interested in cool, half-hearted acknowledgement of who He is. I mean, you know, how, you know how it goes. The person who says, oh, yeah, I believe that Jesus stuff, but I'm not going to get too serious about it. Jesus would say, that won't do. Do you remember the first commandment? They come to Jesus and they ask Him, what what is the first commandment? What is the most important commandment? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Total abandonment. Follow with everything. 
And some people, no doubt, will consider it to be a waste. Are you ready? Are you willing to pour out your future on Jesus? So some thought it was wasteful, but Jesus deemed it to be beautiful. And that's our second characteristic we're going to look at. You know, as we look at this and we look at the woman's actions, we naturally ask ourselves the question, did she know what she was doing? I mean, obviously she was intentional. She made a choice to do this. In that sense, she knew what she was doing. But did she understand the significance of what she was doing? When she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head, was she intending in that action to anoint Jesus' body for burial? Was that her intention? And, and we might be inclined to say, well, of course not. How could she have known that? There's no way she could have known that. That's just the way Jesus interpreted her actions, but that wasn't necessarily her intention. Well, maybe so. But on the other hand, maybe she did know. I think it's very possible. We don't know for sure. There's no way we could know for sure. But I, I think it's very possible that she had a real sense of what she was doing and the meaning behind what she was doing. There was obviously, and everybody could see this at this point, there was obviously a tension building between Jesus and the religious leaders. It was apparent that the religious leaders did not approve of Jesus. And we can imagine that she sensed that. We could imagine her saying to herself in her own mind, you don't want to be on these people's bad side. It's not going to end well. She can't foresee all the details, but she may sense that Jesus' days are short. And it breaks her heart because they have never seen a prophet like this before. And so in an act of faith and in an act of love, she grabs the thing that is most valuable to her, that's most expensive, that she treasures most, And she breaks it and anoints his body for what she believes will be his inevitable and coming death. And you know, the act of what she does here, her act of devotion, is particularly highlighted for its beauty when it is considered against the backdrop of the surrounding deceit and betrayal that dominates this section of Mark. So, so we're focusing in on these verses, on verses 1 through 11. But if you, if you look back a little bit further, what you see is that in Mark chapter 12, just a couple chapters before, Jesus is in the temple and there's this interaction going on between him and the religious leaders. And over and over again, the religious leaders are opposing him and confronting him and challenging him. And then in Mark chapter 13, the disciples are taken by the amazement and the beauty of the temple, how grand it is and how beautiful it is. But Jesus tells them, listen, don't be so impressed. Because of the wickedness of this place, God's judgment is going to come upon this temple and it will be wiped out. And then we come to Mark chapter 14, which we just started this morning. And Mark chapter 14, the whole chapter is marked by betrayal. Judas betrays Jesus. Later we'll see in the chapter that the disciples forsake Him. Peter denies Him. And then he's arrested and he's put on trial before the Sanhedrin. That's Mark chapter 14. It is a section of darkness. There's there's darkness and betrayal and deceit everywhere. And this woman's actions are a ray of light 
a stroke of beauty in the midst of that darkness. And who is it that is opposing this woman? Who is it that's opposing her acts of beauty? Who is it that's indignant and is scolding this woman for what she has done? We would be tempted to say it's the religious leaders, right? They're the ones that are opposed to Jesus. They're the ones that are so upset that she's been so wasteful and spent all this expensive ointment on Jesus. But if you look at the gospel accounts, in particular you look at Matthew, you look at John, they tell us, they make it clear that those who were present were Jesus' friends and disciples. It's not the religious leaders. The ones who are present when this takes place are the disciples and Jesus' friends. This is a friendly crowd. They like Jesus. And they are indignant. They are beside themselves. In the midst of all the darkness that is surrounding Jesus at this time, they cannot discern the beauty of this woman's actions. And they call darkness light and light darkness. Before we're too hard on them, you know, we like to see ourselves as the woman in the story, right? We're the woman coming with the expensive ointment to show our extravagant love and devotion for Jesus. But the truth is, so many times we're not. We're the disciples. We're playing it safe with Jesus. We're hedging our bets. We're saying not too much, not too far. Don't go too far with this commitment to Jesus thing. And consider, it was the disciples to whom Jesus said from His own lips, He said, take up your cross and follow Me. Because if you lose your life, you will save it. It was the disciples who heard from Jesus' lips, let the dead bury their dead. You follow Me. It's just at the end of Mark chapter 12, just a couple chapters before, the disciples were with Jesus when this poor widow comes into the temple and she gives one penny. And I can imagine Jesus said with a smile on His face, she has given more than all the others because she gave everything she had. And here it is. All of that now is being lived out before them. In this woman. They're seeing it before their very eyes. And they are indignant. It is a reminder to us that it is only by the grace of God that we will have eyes to see what is truly beautiful. Do you know that? It is only by the grace of God that we will be given hearts to value what is truly valuable and to discern and to see what is truly beautiful and to treasure it. And so we need to pray for eyes to see. We need to pray for hearts that delight and rejoice in true beauty. Some of you may be here this morning and you have a friend or maybe you have a child and they are following Jesus passionately and you need to pray for eyes to see it as beautiful and not stand in their way. Our actions were... Wasteful, they were beautiful, and third, they were enduring. In verse 9, you see there in the text, Jesus says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And you know, Jesus' words are being fulfilled this morning 
as we read this passage and as we reflect on it. I believe it will also be fulfilled among the Rangi people. Some of you don't know who they are. We've announced this the last couple of weeks. It's such a big deal. I want to share it with you again. We've supported, uh, years back, we supported a missionary couple, Alec and Tammy Millen. They were missionaries in Tanzania. And uh, they were, their purpose, their goal was to minister to the Rangi people, who is a people group in that region that was unreached. They had not been reached with the gospel. They had not heard the gospel. They had no access to the gospel. And so the goal was the Millens, along with a number of other missionary families and teams there, were going to translate Bible stories, gospel stories, 